I want to look at a couple of passages of the Bible, and uh, we're going to be looking at this in uh, maybe a little different way than what I originally planned, but that's okay. Raising sane kids in an insane world. Got a lot of information to give you today about just simply uh, raising up a child. And as we do that, as we uh, look at this passage and look at these passages, there's so much uh, going on in our world today. It is an insane world. Right now we have people... Uh, young people going into schools, going into theaters, going in different places and shooting. Uh, it used to be that perhaps every once in a while you would hear of someone uh, taking their own life. But now you're seeing that over and over and over again and people taking other people's lives before they're taking their own. We see an upside down world where it seems like the good is bad, the bad's good. And you're raising, you know, raising your children up and you're thinking to yourself, look, you know, I, I felt like I did the best job I could. I looked. Uh, my generation, for example, looked at all the Christian books that were being written and tried to go by those, and suddenly that didn't work out as well as we thought maybe it should work out. And so we're, we're sort of in a situation in life where we feel like, wow, what, what is a person to do? What is my job uh, in all this? Well, in Proverbs 22, 6, it says this, Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we've often looked at this verse and said, well, that, that's a promise from God. I'm just claiming that as a promise. And I don't want to disappoint anyone here today, but there's different purposes of different places in the Bible. Uh, it's called uh, the science of hermeneutics, and I don't want to get into that too much. But just simply to say this, there are different reasons why different things are written. For example, Psalms, full of promises. Proverbs is a cause and effect. It's wisdom literature. Now, in, in, the, in the Gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that, that's really historical books. The book of Acts is a perfect example of a historical book where it's a descriptive thing of what's going on. For example, I'll just give you an example. When Peter and John went before the temple uh, at one time, and a, a man was begging, and he was crippled, and he was begging, and, he said, and Peter said, look, silver and gold have I none. That's King James Version, you know. Amen. Silver and gold have I none. Such as I have, I get into the stand up and walk. And the man stood up and walked. Did that happen? Absolutely. Does that mean I can go anywhere in the world? And if I'm in a temple or a church and I look at someone just happens to be there that's a handicap. And I might say, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, I give unto thee stand up and walk. And they're going to walk every time? No, it doesn't mean that. It's descriptive. And not prescriptive. Prescriptive would be like James chapter 5. Where it says, if any of you are sick, call for the elders of the church. There's, and pray. And the, and the prayer, the diligent prayer of the righteous man will avail much. It's just simply prescriptive of what we need to do when we get sick. So there's different reasons for different things in the Bible. The book of Proverbs is a cause and effect book. It is wisdom literature. If you do these things... This is pretty much going to be the cause. There's one proverb that says the ringing of the nose brings forth blood. Is that true? Well, let's try it. Turn to your neighbor. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Instead of shaking hands today, ring their nose up. And, you know, chances are 90% of you or, bo or more would, would have a bloody nose. But, man, there's some people here with tough noses. And other people don't have the tight squeeze. Maybe they need to have on the nose. And so it wouldn't bleed. But the cause and effect is there. And so as we're looking at this verse, train up a child in the way he should go, as we're looking at this, what can we do to really create the thirst in the hearts of our children and raising them up? 
you know, it's, the old saying is, you can, you can take the horse to the trough, but you can't make him drink. And then somebody else would add, yes, but you can feed him salt. And once they're fed the salt, they're going to drink. And so how can we make our children thirsty? I want you to look, first of all, three things this morning. First of all, how, how, how does our children need to feel? What do they need to feel? Notice <clears throat> this word, train up. Whatever it means, just for a moment, it means to do up, okay? You're doing something. You're building something up. It's like building up out of a building. Now, there's four things that this Hebrew word, originally the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and so there's four things that this word means in the Old Testament when it's mentioned. Four things, and they're all uh, applicable here to this verse. One is to develop a thirst. Develop a thirst. In fact, the, the original meaning to all this in this passage, would give the idea of a woman taking grapes and crushing them, taking the juice, putting into an infant, newborn infant's mouth to get that sucking sound going, and so they can, they can nurse them. And that's the original intent here, to train up. Another thing it means, create a thirst, but also to dedicate. Remember in Psalm, well, Psalm 127, I think it is, children are, are, are in the, uh, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And that whole idea is to take aim is to dedicate something. And so you're dedicating them. There's, a, there's an aim involved. There's a task involved in raising up your children. And then it also talks about discipline. To, uh, that you would discipline them because the idea here in this Hebrew word is a bit inside a horse's mouth. You would train them, put a bit inside their mouth to train them, to discipline them, but also teach them and give them direction. So those four things, last two things, discipline and direction. Direction we get from teaching. Notice it says the way they should go. What does that mean? Well, I read a book, a couple of books of uh, years ago, that said, well, it's according to their bent. It means bent. Well, it could mean that. But in the, what, what they mean by that, the bent is like, for example, what is your child bent toward? They're bent toward sports. Raise them that way. They're built toward intellectualism. Raise them that way. They're built toward music. Raise them that way. Raise them according to their talent. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. It doesn't mean that at all. Okay? The book of Proverbs is not only a book of wisdom, but it's in, uh, in wisdom literature, but it has a cause and effect. But what it has the idea of is contrasting a person that is a godly person with a fool. Now, a fool in the book of Proverbs is just simply someone that doesn't follow the Lord. And so the way he should go is following the scripture. The way he should go is following the Lord. It's just like in Deuteronomy when it talks about raising up a child and passing down your faith to the next generation and next generation. That's the idea that it has. When you raise them according to the scripture and when they are old, that is a bearded one, they would not depart from it. When they're fully mature in their life. And remember, not a promise, cause and effect of life. As we're looking at this, we need... How do, you do, how do you train them up? The first thing they need is hope. They need direction. They need a dedication of where they're going to go and what they need to do. Now, in the book of uh, Judges, for example, a great passage here in the Bible. At the end of the time where the people were going into the promised land. Remember the story? They, they come out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they... Um, basically disobeyed the Lord. And so that whole generation that disobeyed God died in the wilderness. A new generation came along. And uh, here's the comment on it. Joshua, who is now the leader, not Moses. Moses was dead. 
died at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It's two books later. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders and outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And all the generation also gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, a couple of things about this passage I've shared with uh, previous messages uh, at, um, at the Oviedo campus. Two things about this. The first generation that was born in the land of Canaan, the promised land, the very first one forgot all about God. Even though, right before they were entering in the promised land, the last commandment, the big one that God gave to the nation of Israel, he says, pass these things that you've seen, that you've heard, your faith down to the next generation. They couldn't even do it in two generations. And the first one, again, that was born in the promised land... Didn't know the Lord at all. But we see there's a picture here. There's a picture on the one hand of Joshua. There's another picture of the elders. And there's another picture of the next generation that followed the elders. The first generation that came along, uh, represented there by Joshua. Joshua really had God as his Lord. He was passionate about God. Everything centered around, his whole life centered around God. And here was a person under the Lordship of Christ. The next generation that came along... The Bible says they knew about God. They knew about the things of God. Didn't say they knew God, just knew about the things of God. The next generation didn't know anything at all. We can see this as an illustration also in the Bible about David. David was a man after God's own heart. He had a son by the name of Solomon, very conflicted, a compromising man. Married into all kinds, married many, many different women from many, many different nations in order just to keep the peace of Israel. He worshipped other, other gods as well. He wrote the book of Proverbs at different points of his life. But he was a man conflicted the whole way. He had a son by the name of Rehoboam, third generation, didn't know God at all, and took the nation of Israel down into sin. And eventually, pretty soon after he took over uh, the, the reigns of Israel, they split, just divided the kingdom altogether. And so we can see this whole thing. And Bruce Wilkinson, in one of his books, who used to be president of Walk Through the Bible, said... That first, genera- that first generation Christian, that one that's under the lordship of Jesus Christ, usually raises people in the middle. And the people in the middle usually raise people in the third generation. It almost works that way most, most of the time. So, man, that's just so disheartening. You mean if I follow the Lord fully all of my life, the chances are I'm going to raise a, either a compromising Christian or someone that's just a compromising church member that's not even saved. So where, where, where are we missing this? Where are we missing this? I wish I would have known this back when I was raising children. Okay, my children are grown now. They're, you know, love them. They're, they're, they love Jesus, but I wish I'd have known this. The problem with this first, we call it a first, he calls it a first chair, first, second chair, third chair, third chair person. The problem over here is that when people, when our children look at us, they see sincerity. They see maybe even legalism. They see a great amount of determination going through the trials of life. They look at that and say, wow, my parents really do have it kind of together, but so what? I don't think I want that. That's what they're saying. I think I can 
handle my problems in a different way. I think I can follow something else. I can follow something different. They're asking the question, so what? And they're asking the question in this way. What is going to make me happiest in life? How can I be happy in life? How can I, and as they get older, how can I be fulfilled and satisfied with life? And if they look at someone sitting in this first chair, the Sol, or rather the, um, the Davids or the Joshuas, they're looking here and they're looking at this person in this chair and say, do they have any joy in their life? Are they happy in life? That's what they're looking for. Is this making them happy? And we're sitting there as a first chair believer, staunchly trying to do the best we can, sincerely in the Lord. But when we're around the house, in the home, boy, there's just so many burdens of life and there's so many complaints of life and so much criticism of what's going on in life and so, so much turmoil. They say, you know, I appreciate where they're coming from and I'm sure that brings some kind of fulfillment to my parents' life. But to me, it's just sort of a have to. It looks like they're just having to do that. I don't think I'm... That's not making me thirsty. Your children need to be thirsty. They need to have hope by looking at you, whether you're a parent, grandparent. They need to look at you and say, you know, that's the ticket. I may want to go my own way and rebel in my own way and be like the prodigal son and run off somewhere. But I know my dad's waiting there. I know my mom is, is there at home. And whatever they have, whatever it is, that's what I, that's what I need. If I'm going to really be happy in life, if I'm going to really have fulfillment in life, that's what I need. And they're not seeing it. And therefore, somebody sits here and thinks, well, I know I need to be saved. You know, right in the middle. The Bible calls it lukewarm. Revelation chapter 3. Lukewarm. I'm kind of in the middle. and I don't want to leave the church. I don't want to leave the things of God. I know, man, I don't want to go to hell. I don't. You know, I do want to go to heaven one day, but boy, I've got to do my own thing. Hopefully, that's going to make me happy. Hopefully, that's going to get me fulfillment. And then when this generation looks here, they're looking at, look, I know my parents still go to church, but it's not doing them any good. What good is it? And they just drop out totally. Is there a thirst there? Are you creating a thirst in the life of your kids? What do they need? They need hope from a parent who is following hard after God. <clears throat> and they're enjoying They go to church. Well, they enjoy it. They get something out of it. Determined to get something out of it. And they get something out of it and they share it with their children. The Bible says, as you walk in the way, as you talk by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 6, they enjoy church. They enjoy reading the Bible. They, you know, they enjoy life because of Jesus. Well, then... What do you need to do? Well, we said develop thirst, dedicate to Christ. We've talked about those in that first point. But then what do we need to do? What is the job of the believer in raising our children? It says train up a child in the way he should go. The way. How do you do that? Once they look at you and say, wow, there's, there's really some joy there. Now, I, Grandpa, maybe it's not the parent. Maybe it's the grandfather. I want to know the answer. Why is it that you can just seem to just take trials so easily? How is it that you fulfill, be fulfilled in life? How is it that you're happy? Tell me how. Then you tell them. And there's two things that you do. Look over in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, and uh, this ends the passage 
really in the Bible, the longest passage in the New Testament about the family. It starts in chapter 5, verse 22, and it ends in chapter 6. And it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. Here's, here's the goal right there. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke. It's saying something not to do. Don't make your children angry. Now, you can't make them, but you can provoke them. How? By not disciplining them in the right way and not instructing them. They get frustrated. You know, maybe you even yell and scream a little bit because you don't want to discipline them. You don't want to take the time to do that. You don't have time to do that. And so it's better just to kind of yell at them a little bit and correct them and send them on their way. And you think, I've done my duty. You provoke them to wrath rather than doing what we need to do. It's just the discipline. Don't provoke, but what do you do? You discipline. Any training that corrects, molds, or strengthens their life. Now, I know we can go to extreme measures here. I know that, you know, we can talk about, you know, the spankings and the time out and all that. Anytime you do something in anger, you, you've messed up because basically your child's looking at you and saying, the only reason you're disciplining me is because you're mad, not because I've done something wrong. And so once you cross that line of anger, the discipline is being in a negative, negative way. Now, you've heard the story. Maybe I've told it here before about the, uh, <clears throat> the guy, that, the comedian, Christian comedian, I know, that was uh, talking about how, you know, you go to church. He just kind of gave this scenario. We used to go to church, and, and there I was in the back seat, and my dad would get all mad about it. He'd reach around and try to spank me. I don't know if you've ever done that before. My dad did. He tried to reach back there, you know. And he says, there's a little compartment they build into cars, that makes you be able to slide back where your dad can't reach you, you know. And, uh, and so after the, the a message was over, uh, a guy came up to him, <clears throat> good country boy, you know, and he said, Preacher, he said, yeah, you know, you're talking about spanking your kids on the way to church. And he thought, oh, I'm going to get it now. Here we go. He says, I found out if you tap on the brakes a little bit, they come back into play. <laughs> I knew I could get something out of you this morning. Uh, it's very biblical. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Discipline your son, Proverbs 19 says, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. What does it mean by this? Listen, when you're permissive, when you're permissive, you're setting him up for death. You're setting him up for a dead life. You know, you look at, uh, I saw this commercial on TV the other day, and I don't, I mean, I, there's a lot of jokes about uh, young adults today, and uh, I, you know, I know that you probably resent them all. But anyway, in this, in this particular thing, uh, I had a guy, I think, uh, having dinner, and I would show it, but I think it would probably advertise whatever they were advertising, I don't want to do that. And so he was fixing dinner, and his son looks about 30 years old, he's over here in a high chair. You seen that commercial? Raise your hand if you've seen that commercial. Okay. I'm the only one that watches TV. Yeah. And y'all are a spiritual group of people. Man. And so anyway, uh, he's back there and he says, Dad, are these free-range chickens? And then uh, his dad kind of rolls his eyes and he, he's given the advertisement. And then the young boy says, uh, young man says, Dad, the Internet's not working, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So he's kind of complaining. And I want to say to this dad, I want to reach into the TV and say, you know, you raised him. 
You, know, you, you raised him. Permissiveness. Here's the problem. When we are permissive with our children and let them get away with murder, you might say, they go out into the world and think everybody else, their boss is going to be permissive with them. The whole world is going to be permissive with them. In fact, we've told them, look, you can do anything you want to do in life. Just believe in yourself. And, and dear friends, God has made us to be worshipers. And what we'll end up doing is worshiping ourselves. We think in our con- this country we're, we're really more talented and better. than we are. There, was a, there was a survey done with Japanese students about 10 years ago. And, and the question was, as they studied their math, they took their, I guess it was some kind of act or SAT or something um, with math. They asked them how they did, and they said, well, not too well. They asked the American kids, how would you do? Great. I, I did great. Well, the Japanese kids did better than the American kids. Why? We've just told them, hey, look, you can do anything you want to do, and it's just not so. They get out into the world. They understand now it's about talent. It's about education. It's about effort. They expect the world to come to them, and it's not coming to them. Permissiveness. Listen, there's nothing wrong. Please hear me. There's nothing wrong. You need to, you need to tell your kids you want them on your team. They need to feel that you love them and want them on the team. But there's nothing wrong with them feeling like they just can't do squat. Because when they come to that point in their life, then that's when they turn to Jesus for help. That's when they turn to Jesus Christ, when they realize that they are sinners and separated from the Lord. Permissiveness. But we can also, uh, we need to discipline. Listen very carefully. We discipline our children today so that they can discipline themselves Tomorrow. That's what it's all about. If we do not discipline and show them the, the boundaries of life, they'll never set boundaries in their life tomorrow. They'll never discipline themselves when to get up, when to go to work, when to be on time, when to, when to do everything in, in school they need to do. We discipline when they're young. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, I'm going I'm to share something with you that's just about as true as anything I've said this morning. Okay. If you have to be loved, you cannot really be an effective parent. Now, I've said that about leadership before. If you want to lead, if you have to be liked, you can't lead. Because people will manipulate you. If you have to be loved, I'm not saying you don't be loved by your children. But if you have to be loved by your children, you can't parent. You say, well, can you grandparent? Yes, you can. But you can't. <laughs> But it's the truth. I can tell you why. Grandparenting is a privilege. It's an honor. Parenting is a privilege. It's an honor. And it's a task. It's a calling in life. And that's where it's different. You will be manipulated. They'll cry. They'll whine. They'll give you the silent treatment. They'll, they'll run to their room and pout. Anything they can. Listen. They're, they're sinners separated from God. Even if, even if they're a Christian, they're growing as a Christian. They want their way. Just like you want your way. And if you have to, if you, you have to be loved, you just can't parent. But here's what you do real quick. You start early. You start early, first of all. And you make things clear. You tell, by the way, you, you never discipline your child for a mistake. Please listen to me. They spill their milk. It's just a mistake. Hey, you don't, you don't scream at it. You don't act frustrated. You just, hey, that's just the way it goes. They sometimes spill milk. You discipline them for defiance and for disobedience. 
but you make the rules clear. Charles Stanley, the, the famous uh, pastor of First Baptist Church of Atlanta, tells a story about uh, his son Andy being uh, when he was young. And uh, the mom, their, uh, his wife, or Andy's mom, told him to go out and clean out the garden, the flower garden, okay? Well, he didn't do it at first, and so they said, they insisted, you go out and clean out the flower garden. So he did. And he comes in, he says, Mom, I've cleaned out the flower garden. You want to see it? She said, yeah, I sure do. She goes out there, and it was clean as a whistle. You've guessed it. No weeds and no flowers. There was nothing. But mulch in that flower bed because she didn't make the things clear. Make it clear. Secondly, you establish the consequences. Now, we, I've joked around about spanking or, you know, the timeout. I'm not sure if timeout works or not. I mean, hey, you know, go to your room with your computer and with your laptop and your phone and your Game Boy or whatever they have now. Uh, X, what do they have now? Man, it, it, I'm never going to buy another one of those things until they stop and say, uh, this is it. We're not going to make any more games on, for, for TV. It's an Xbox, right? Is that, is that pretty, pretty good? Okay, Xbox. Okay. So they got all this. But unless they see pain in the consequences of some time, when they get out in the world, they're going to be so surprised when there's pain. When they get stopped by a policeman, and he's not going to be as understanding as you. When they fail in a subject because the teacher just wasn't as sweet as you are. When they get out and maybe they, they, they take something they shouldn't have taken at work. When they fail to show up at work. They're going to be so surprised when there's pain involved. Because you've never showed them any consequences for their actions. So there has to be consequences and you have to follow through. I've seen it before where, hey, I, I've counted 13 times one time where a parent told the child, their little, uh, not even a toddler, like a five, six-year-old, <clears throat> go to bed, go to bed, go to bed, go to bed. And it wasn't me, by the way. Go to bed, go to bed. Or this, or this. Or you're not going to get a gold star or whatever it was. You're not going to get this. You're not going to get that. And so finally, with a smirk on his face, he finally, at the 13th threat, makes it to bed. He got a star. Why? He did it. Listen, you, you tell them once and maybe twice. And after that, time's up. Amen. Really. I mean, I used to do this. Sometimes I'd tell now, guys, I want you to, time for bed. Y'all going up. Your mom said it's time for bed. I always had to say that, you know, because I, I wasn't keeping up with the time. Your mom said it's time for bed, so go, go on to bed. They, they, sometimes they would ignore me. Now, I'm telling you for the second time, go to bed. Kind of an acknowledgement. We will in a minute. And I'd start counting. One, and guess what? Get, you know what they did at one? They ran as fast as they could go. Two and three. What happened if it got to three? There were consequences. And it only had to happen once or twice, and it didn't have to happen anymore. Once or twice. That's it. There's consequences, and there's consistency. Being consistent and not doing it in anger. Well, it says here that we need to discipline and instruct. What do we need to teach? I'm just going to go over this real quick, okay? You can study this later. Who to love. Who you love is going to determine the decisions you make in life. If you don't believe me, wait till your teenager falls in love with, with somebody else. All of a sudden, they change into a different creature altogether. Number two, what to believe. Now, you teach them how to, what to love by being in that first chair 
with Joshua, with David, and enjoying it. What to believe. My goodness, why would you not teach your children what to believe? Don't you believe it strongly enough? Don't you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Why would you not want to teach them that? Why, why would you not want to teach them that the Bible is the way of instruction to, the, to life? And that's how you grow, not only in Christ, but get through life and make the best decisions in life. You need to teach them who to love, what, what to believe, who to trust. You trust God. You need to teach them a reverence, an, an awesomeness for God. And you need to teach them about salvation. My mom used to say, before, long before she died, I would just think it's the worst thing in the world for me to ever bring a child into this world that wouldn't meet me in heaven. You teach them how to be saved. And what are the consequences? I mean, what is the goal? It says here that it may be well with you. It says in Proverbs 22, 6, in the way they should go, that when they're old, they will not depart from it. An old bearded one. How do you do that? You create, first of all, you've got to create the thirst. Because without that, they're not going to want what you want. You can teach them, but all you're doing is behavior modification. As soon as they graduate from high school, they're going to go, go off and live any way they want to. It's like I was sharing with uh, the church last, last week. My dad, and I'll just close with this, but <clears throat> he, we used to have this uh, in Boart, Georgia, where I grew up. We used to have this apple tree right at the end of the driveway. We didn't plant it. It just grew wild. And my dad wanted an apple tree, and so he just let it grow. And it had green apples on it. I mean, green, sour apples that weren't fit to eat. Something was wrong with the tree. And they were all diseased, and it looked like every once in a while you could get one that's kind of clean. And every, one, every now and then, not every day, not even every week, he would come home, pick an apple off the tree and take a bite out of it, spit it out and throw it out into the woods. Now, what could he have done? Well, I tell you what he could have done. He could have went to the grocery store down in Publix, got him a, a couple of dozen red, juicy apples and stapled them to that tree. And everybody that walked by said, wow, that John Mercer, he's got a green thumb. Just the other day, there were no apples there at all. Look at it now. It's just filled with beautiful red apples. But what would have happened to those apples? They would have rotted and fallen to the ground because they were not connected to the vine. What we're doing, dear friends, as parents, with only 6% of the people, listen, 6% of the people who are growing up in church leave high school, go into college, and still go to church. 6%. What are we doing? We are professional apple staplers. That's what we're doing. Modifying behavior through discipline and teaching without the thirst. The answer to change the heart. And, of course, the heart begins to change and does change. Only God can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you've never received Christ into your heart. That's your first step. You, you can't train up a child in the way he should go. Unless you go that way yourself. So I want to encourage you today. I want to urge you today. That if you've never received Christ into your heart. That you would make that decision today. And you can do that by calling on the Lord. Sincerely calling on him. So let's pray and make that happen right now. In the quietness of this moment. Before I turn it back over to her. Would you pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud? If you want Jesus in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. 
Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up my heart. I ask you to come in. I repent of my sins. And I ask you to bring joy and peace in my life. Fulfillment in my life by following you.